It's Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause... God gave them up to vile afflictions, for even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts, one towards another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was met. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. Our sermon today is based on that package, passage, passage. And there's a sense in which the reading of this part of Romans 1 might be thought to be rather depressing. There are various lists and catalogues in Scripture of the sins of the human race. This indeed is one of the features of the writings of the Apostle Paul. That again and again he gives us these lists concerning the sins of mankind in all their various forms. This, I believe, is the longest list of all. It is an astonishing summary of the corruption of the human heart and of the depravity of human nature. Many, many verses here, as you would have noticed, deal with nothing more nor less than the various manifestations of evil, of irreligion and of sin. However, I want to show you that this should never depress the Christian. 
If it depresses worldly people to hear these things, we who are believers understand why it is that the Apostle Paul spends so long telling us about these various forms of evil that are manifested in the world and in society. What is the reason why he tells us these things? It is not in order to make us feel that the world is as bad and as dark as can be. No, it's for another reason. It is in order to prepare us for the grace of God. In the epistle to Romans, Paul is giving us the gospel, but in order to make us appreciate the wonders of the gospel, he begins by telling us the need for the gospel. You see, mankind's problem is that they don't know their need. If men and women all around us in Kerrang, to look no further afield, knew what their real problem is, they would be coming here and similar places to find the answer. But they don't know their problem, and they are not being told their real problem. The Apostle Paul begins by explaining to us what is really wrong with the human race. There are so many explanations for the state of society. Are there not? It makes you smile to listen to some of our politicians when they begin to analyse the problem in the modern world. The continuing rise in crime, they tell us, of course, it is all to do with lack of resources. And that's the political correct word, resources. If we were to put more money, they say, into, say, education, educating the poor, the deprived, the ethnic minorities, etc., then things would greatly improve. People would behave much better and crime would go down, they say. The real problem is that people are out of work. They're bored and, they, and so they have to take extra alcohol and drugs to compensate. You don't blame them, do you, if they decide they want to go in for a life of crime. Life is grim for them. And it is all to do with money and resources, education and leisure. People are victims these days, victims of their upbringing, victims of mental disorders, etc. There's always a reason to blame something or someone else. Whether they believe this or not, I don't know. I suppose they do. But if this is what they think is wrong with the human race, they haven't the faintest idea of the gravity, the seriousness and the plight of mankind. So the Apostle tells us here, our real problem is sin. All this list of sins is to show us how extremely dreadful sin is. If people don't know their condition, they're never going to think they need Christ as Saviour. My friends, if only we could persuade people in this community alone, for instance, that their problem is that of sin and there is no cure anywhere for sin, apart from in the gospel. It is therefore incumbent upon them to come to this house of God to hear the gospel expounded. If only I say we could persuade them of that, they would come. And they would certainly hear the gospel here, as I've heard it nearly every week from Rudy's sermon. But they are not persuaded of that. What then does the Apostle Paul tell us about sin? You see from the text, it takes two main forms ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. As we read in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, those two words summarise all sin. 
The first word, ungodliness, means as we are, we are born by nature. We break the first table of the moral law. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Ungodliness is breaking those commandments. The second word is unrighteousness. This is to do now with the second table of the Lord. law. Honour thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. Thou shalt not covet within our hearts with lust or jealousy. None of that is permissible. All of that is breaking the second table of the Lord. Ungodliness, the first table of the law. Unrighteousness, the second table of the law. The first and second tables are contained in these two in these two words, the breaking of the law of God in every form. Putting it another way, ungodliness means sins which are distinctly against God. Unrighteousness is those sins which are against our fellow man. One is vertical, the other horizontal. They are all sins which mankind is guilty of. Why should these things be so very serious? The ultimate answer is right here in the text. It is because of God's attitude to sin. The wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God means his holy hatred of all forms of sin and his determination to intent to punish all sin sooner or later. This is a real condition of mankind. This is a real problem. Ultimately, it has little or nothing to do with whether we are rich or poor, whether we are of ethnic minority, whether we are employed or unemployed, and whether we have a good or bad upbringing, whether we've had good or bad parents or no parents at all. Ultimately, it has little or nothing to do with these things. It has to do with our relationship to God. It is all wrong by nature. And we read on in Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now today, more than ever, creation is screaming out, There is a God. The absolute impossible theory of evolution is taught in our schools and it's mentioned in almost every film and news item on nature. Society has been brainwashed into believing and worshipping this theory, a theory that seeks only to remove God from man's life. The discovery of the DNA molecule should have put to death this theory once and for all. A scientist has been asked, what would they know about the DNA module now? How complex is it? And this biologist replied, it's the universe. The complexity of it is unbelievable. And also the DNA module is so complex that it's a code, a code, and that code's got to be read. Now we look at the information it contains and we look at the world, we find information only comes from an intelligent mind. doesn't happen by chance. And if we look at the complexity of that, it is absolutely impossible to have occurred by random chance. Man's new God is science. 
They must have blind faith to believe in evolution. Across the world, if you're a scientist and you say you don't believe in evolution, you're persecuted and you'll lose your job. I remember once Peter Sparrow telling to me, he's from the Creation Science Bus, and he was doing a course at one of the Melbourne universities on panatology, and he let it known that he was a Christian and didn't believe in evolution. And some of the lecturers would shout and scream abuse and swear at him down the corridors of that university. That is how much they hated God. Now, as we read on in Romans 1.22, professing them to be wise, they become fools. In the long list of sins which is given to us, we see one word summarises them all. It is the word against. Sin is against everything that is right and good. Sin is the very opposite of everything that is good. It is against our parents. Isn't that an interesting phrase to have there, disobedient to parents? Children are against their parents, even the very ones who gave them their birth and existence. Sin is against our own physical, phys- physical and moral well-being. Then there is this reference to men with men and women with women. We know very well the consequences of that sort of behaviour results in terrible punishment. The the phrase is right here, receiving in themselves that recompense for their error which was met. God has temporal as well as eternal punishments. For those who commit these things, sin is against our fellow man. Sin is against our own health, against our families, against God, against truth, against light. It also illustrates how entirely and completely man is against the holiness of God. If there is one thing more than another about God that sinners hate, it is is his holiness. So the apostle tells us here what people have done. They have changed God, changed the glory of uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. This is literally true. This is precisely how men represented God in the days of the Apostle Paul. They worshipped everything, all sorts of creatures that they saw with their eyes. They made their images and idols in the form of cows, dogs, sheep, lions, even beastly things that crawled upon the floor. This is all because they could not tolerate a view of God being perfectly holy. Of course, we can't by nature tolerate such a view of God because such a view of God entirely condemns our own life and hearts. Therefore, man's religion automatically becomes debased. Man recreates God. He invents God with his own hands. God's, he can manipulate and handle God's he can manage to live comfortably with. And we do see that in many cults, and also in many so-called Christian churches, they ignore the scriptures and they manipulate them to create a God, a God that is easier for them to handle. We see manifestations of this in the radical green movements of where nature is worshipped today. We also see it in the liberal movements within the church, those who pick and choose which parts they believe and what they reject. Things like denying the virgin birth ordaining homosexual ministers they're just as I said making a god to suit themselves whereas the truth is that the real god is the enemy 
of all sin because of his infinite holiness and his infinite glory. Paul tells us that society pays a very heavy price whenever it changes the true view of God. We see a most ominous phase repeated here again and again. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness. And we see it again in verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. And again in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. In other words, when people, when society changes its view of God and misrepresents the view and holiness of God, what always happens, says Paul, is this. God withdraws from society common grace so that the lusts, passions and depravities of man's heart are all the more poured forth and expressed. You must understand that we have a word for this and we call it reprobation. Reprobation is the word we give to whenever God gives people over to their own hearts and lusts. This needs a word of explanation. In society, God all the time is holding sinners in check. He does this in various ways, some of which are visible and some of which are, are invisible. One of the ways whereby God holds sin and sinners in check is through the fear of punishment. That is why in society there must be righteous punishment. The reason for that is both because of the justice of it and also as a deterrent for others. Because if there is one thing sinners do not want to happen, and that is to be punished. So God has punishments which he puts upon men, and in this way he restrains their depravity. A man may want to strike his neighbour, but if he thinks that if he is caught, then he'll be punishment, punished, then he is restrained. The way it works is obvious. A child at home may want to do something which is forbidden. They may want to use ba- a bad word to their parents or disobey them. But when they know that they are likely to be chastened for it, then they will think again. That is a way whereby through common grace, as we call it, God restrains sin. In Christians, God restrains sin in a different way. In Christians, God restrains sin through special grace. That is to say, he also inclines our hearts and our affections that we love what is right and we desire with all our hearts to do what is right. That is much more than common grace. Common grace does not give to anyone a desire to please God and to glorify him, but special saving grace does. But what I'm talking about is this common grace, and here is what the Apostle Paul tells us. When society does not like to know the truth about our Creator God, his glory, his holiness, his majesty, his sovereignty, when society wants to cast off the fear of God, then the punishments that they have to pay from God is this punishment of withdrawing of common grace from society. You see that illustrated in the days just before the flood. Those ominous words that God gives to Noah, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also his flesh. 
That was a warning that society was becoming very depraved, so corrupt that God was going to withdraw the influence of common grace from them. The Holy Spirit was going to give them over and give them up so they would do these evil things for which the waters of the flood gave them a fitting punishment. So it was in the days of Paul, as the apostle travelled about the Mediterranean countries and Greece, Rome and Asia Minor, he saw evidence everywhere of societies depraved and given over and given up by God to all these terrible lusts. Which from his list, they are all catalogued here. He explains the reason behind it. It is not an accident when society becomes so depraved. It is a sign that they have so displeased and angered God that he has withdrawn from them all restraint. When God's anger reaches a certain pitch for society's sins, he takes away the leash from their necks, as it were, and watches men brutalise and rush at one another. This is precisely what is being depicted here. For instance, you see in verse 29 what sort of society was it that the Apostle Paul lived in. People, he said, were filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, dispute malignity, whisperers, and so on. The last verse of this chapter is the climax, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do it. That was the way it was. They had their amphitheatres and coliseums, huge grounds rather like a football stadium today, You can go to Italy today and see the ruins of them. They would hold maybe 80,000 people. And what did they do? What did they come to watch? They came to watch spectacles of games. The games consisted of gladiators, one with a sword and the other had a long metal fork and a net. They were trying to kill each other. The crowd would roar with pleasure. They would bring on a few innocent girls and throw them in the middle, getting some wild beasts to kill them or crocodiles to eat them. They would watch the girls running for their lives as the beast chased them. Later on, Christians were thrown in to amuse the crowd. See the beastly character they knew in their conscience that this was against God and that those who did such things were worthy of death. So my friends, this is the problem with society. This is the problem with man. As I close, I need to say this to you, my friends, because you know and believe the truth, But I must say it again, for your hearing and for your comfort, there is no way to cure this disease of sin but through the gospel and the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit and the new birth. Faith, repentance and regeneration. Conversion, uniting our hearts by faith to Christ. I say there is no other solution. Social workers may have their place, but they can't put right what is wrong. The police have their very important function, but they cannot put right what is wrong. Our parliaments, even if they have a will to do so, they cannot put it right. You see how greatly we need God to visit us again? That is what he does every time he pours out his spirit in fresh reviving of his church. My friends, we need to pray for our society. We need to be a witness and to witness to others. Don't underestimate the tremendous importance of prayer and of witnessing for God in public, in private and in the family. 
It is our only hope. If ever our society gets to the point where no one is praying and no one is calling on God, then I say he will give over the whole of society. Thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God for the blood and the death of our Saviour. We believe it, we know it, we've tasted it. We've felt the power of it and we have been healed from this terrible evil of sin. Let us therefore not hesitate to go cheerfully into society and when God gives us an opportunity to say a word to sinners under the wrath of God, tell them that the real problem is not political but spiritual. The consequences are not merely temporal but eternal. Man needs to know he is sinful. John MacArthur said, Grace means nothing to a person who does not know he is sinful and that such sinfulness means he is separated from God and damned. It is therefore pointless to preach grace under the impossible demands of the law and the reality of guilt before God it preached. An example of that, we had a, a builder do some work at our house and I was talking to him and he was some other one of his tradies had let him down and he was ranting and raving about how bad this guy was. And I said, what about you? I said, you're not bad too? And he said, no, 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 I'm not bad, I'm good, I don't rip anybody off, I do all the right things. And I said, is that right? You really think that? He says, yes, and he was coming on quite strong. I said, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever looked on a woman lustfully? Have you ever stolen anything, even a little thing, and all of a sudden he melted and said, not by those standards. So it's a good evangelistic tool, is that, is to ask people, just bring them back to the Ten Commandments and they'll admit that they're a liar, they'll admit that they're an adulterer, they'll admit they're a thief. And then, after that, they realise what's wrong. You can tell them that there is a saviour and explain the gospel to them. And in Galatians 3.24, it says, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith is come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, so we are no longer under the law. Christ has the key to the human heart. My friends, that he would come in the power of his grace and pour out fresh anointing upon us all, that society may feel its profoundest need for the grace of God. There is no other cure. There is no other hope. We are all grateful indeed, beyond all words, that we who live in this crooked, wicked, unrighteous and ungodly world, we have been delivered from the wrath to come. May God help us to see our lives in such a light and to live unto his glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.